0: It's Tuesday, February 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Texas continues its recovery from the winter storm that took down its power grid. And while millions of people were left without power, some still have the lights on and are now being hit with bills in the thousands of dollars. One man was hit with a bill at almost $17,000. For those that did not have fixed electricity prices, The cost of their power went up with demand. Ivan Penn, energy correspondent at the New York Times, joins us for why some Texas electric bills skyrocket. Next, it seems counterintuitive, but some COVID tests can't pick up on certain variants in their results, and labs are using those very same tests to flag if you might have the UK variant. If tests come back positive for COVID-19, but fail a specific section of the test, that could be an indicator that someone is infected with the UK strain. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how some tests are being used to flag different COVID variants. Finally, you've heard of lab-grown meat. Now get ready for lab-grown wood that could be potentially grown in any shape. Scientists at MIT have a very early proof of concept that allowed them to grow plant tissue with cells, no seeds, soil, or sunlight needed. Keith Galogly, contributing writer at Wired, joins us for more on this new tech. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. Some
1: people are getting high bills, particularly people on on uh, variable rate plans. I'm saying to those people right now, we're going to find a solution to that problem.
2: Joining us
0: now is Ivan Penn, energy correspondent at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Ivan.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Still tracking some stories from the storm that battered Texas. Uh, it ruined the power grid. it left millions without power we were seeing stories that some people were getting charged thousands of dollars for their power that might have stayed on and uh, it might not have been continuous power. It could have been flashes here and there, but still people were getting charged 30 times to 50 times more than they normally would. This all has to do with the electricity plans that people can get. And some people can get it at wholesale prices, a variable rate. And when demand increases, the prices increase. And that's exactly what happened to some people. There was one guy whose bill was over $16,000, almost $17,000. So Ivan, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing there.
2: Texas is a unique energy market, unique not only in the United States, but all of North America. You have a combination of things that happen. One, the uniqueness has to do with the fact that Texas operates an energy-driven market that is essentially follows basic economics when demand goes up, price goes up. And what the hope is, is that you will get more suppliers coming into the market because of those high prices to be able to, on their end, capitalize. And then on the side of the consumer, the idea is those high prices will lead them to reduce their usage. And some of the state officials are even saying that the consumers didn't quite understand the complexity of the program that they were in, would have a fixed amount uh, monthly, and basically a typical case might would be 9.99 a month for a fixed charge, and then a component that is tied to the wholesale market. Now, under normal circumstances, that works out well. But when the prices skyrocket the way they did during this storm, then that's when you end up with customers who have bills in the thousands. In the case of Scott Willoughby, that sixteen thousand seven hundred and fifty-two dollar bill.
0: That is pretty insane. A lot of these people that were having this issue were customers of a company called Gritty, and they're based out of Houston. So one of the interesting things that uh, you know with this is you know you can track how much you're getting charged on on your phone through an app and all that. But this company also gets connected to either your debit card or credit card or something. So the charges could be either immediate or charged directly to the credit card. So a lot of people were having problems with that, too. They're saying, well, you know, I just got charged directly. I have to pay this. Is there any remedy? I know lawmakers are working out uh, deals now to see what they can do to help. But once they've been charged with this, I mean, they're on the hook for this, right?
2: at least initially, the state may, after its examination and investigation, provide some relief to those consumers. But in some of these cases, like Mr. Willoughby, I mean, his entire savings is gone. Uh, In another case, a woman, she's down to a couple of hundred dollars in in her bank account. You know, some of it is that we, especially these days, of course, set our, our regular monthly payments on auto pays so when something like this happens you get hit and in this case hit really
0: hard what did gritty have to say for their part because I, my understanding is they also sent out like an email right before you know everything happened telling people switch providers now just in case you know a lot of people didn't still what has been their response
2: they were also frustrated with the state so there's been a lot of finger pointing going back and forth and in the case of gritty gritty issued a statement and what they were criticizing the state about was the fact that there was a lift of the cap on the amount of the wholesale prices. The, again, the idea is that you're going to, uh, it's sort of a, what we refer in the industry as demand response. So uh, when the prices are high again, the consumers will reduce their usage. That's sort of the expectation. If you decide to stay in, continue using power, then your bill goes high or those suppliers come in. The state to sort of hasten that economic driven element lifted the cap from prices were $1,200 on the utility scale per megawatt hour. And by scale, that cap was lifted to $9,000 or just about. $9,000 per megawatt hour. So you see how much of a vast difference there was where prices were to where they ended up. And Gritty's complaint was, why would you do this and drive the market crazy? Even though some of these retailers would benefit, but they also could go bankrupt if people aren't able to pay and these retailers are stuck. This is What happened in California in 2000, 2001, we saw in the years afterward retailers just going bankrupt.
0: Ivan Penn, energy correspondent at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: Now, in the UK variant, there's actually a section of the genetic code in the spike protein area, which is something that folks may have heard of. It's one of the proteins that hangs on the surface of the virus. That part of the genetic code, some of the tests can no longer pick that up. Joining
0: us now is Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Brianna. Thanks for having me. We're uh, seeing that there's a handful of COVID tests that in one way can help flag these new variants that we're seeing out there, in another way they can't. So there's this handful of tests that can't really detect a certain part of the UK variant, but in these tests where we see that this one little component might be missing, they're actually able to tell that it is this variant that is indeed the one that has infected the person. So, Brianna, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with these uh, tests and how some of them are able to flag this UK variant.
1: So it's a little counterintuitive. right? um, So basically, the way that it works is, as far as we know right now, the vast majority of COVID tests still work just fine on the variant. So if you're infected with a virus that that happens to be a variant, like the test will still come up as a positive. But um, for just a handful of the tests, one section of the test isn't working for the UK variant. So a lot of these tests actually have multiple different parts. In one instance, this one test that we're talking about from Thermo Fisher Scientific actually has three different parts where it searches for three different chunks of the virus's genetic material. Now, in the UK variant, there's actually a section of the genetic code in the spike protein area, which is something that folks may have heard of. It's one of the proteins that hangs on the surface of the virus. That part of the genetic code, some of the tests can no longer pick that up. But the thing about that is it's actually more of a benefit than a detriment in some situations. Because if you're looking at these test results and you see that one section of the test isn't working, but the two other sections still work, you can say that looks funny and that might actually be one of the variants that we're looking for.
0: Now, these tests in question, these are the PCR tests. They're not like the rapid response tests or anything like that, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: These tests in question from this uh, specific lab right now, what are they doing to either change the test or are they just kind of going through with the ones that they have and just kind of uh, flagging the ones that don't mark all three sections?
1: The company, um, which is sort of this big diagnostics company, is working on a software update that will go along with the test that will sort of more easily flag when something like this occurs so laboratories can see it and then send it off for sequencing. And they're also sort of working on a new test that is able to specifically identify some of the key variants that we're looking for. And sort of just to to be clear about sort of what these tests are doing is they're slightly separate from the genomic sequencing, which sort of analyzes the genome of the virus that can sort of help figure out the variant that it is. Infectious disease experts say that we're going to need a lot more of surveillance and genomic sequencing in general to keep track of these variants and that the flu in sort of these tests is helpful to a certain extent, but it definitely can't get the job done by itself. And we sort of need wider screening as, on a whole.
0: And there's no cause for concern for many people. As you mentioned, if you have coronavirus, the tests are still going to pick that up. This ha- has to do with kind of the variant and the way the tests work in targeting the spike protein. That's the thing in, in, in the case right with this. So of all the tests that are authorized looking at the virus's genetic material, about 85% of those don't target the spike protein. So the majority of tests are, are going to be good enough to go through it and get accurate results at least.
1: So a lot of these tests that are authorized right now, there is a risk that, you know, the virus mutate and some of the tests become less sensitive. Like just like with vaccines and therapeutics, that's something that's on the table. But because that's on the table, we've known that the entire time just because, you know, viruses mutate and spread. And so a lot of these tests, look for multiple sections of the virus sort of as a way to combat the potential for mutation. So like a lot of the robustness is sort of built right into the way that these tests are designed. But you're absolutely correct. A lot of the mutations for variants, not just with the UK variant, but with the one from South Africa as well, a lot of the mutations have happened on the spike protein. And a lot of the diagnostic tests, both the molecular ones and the rapid antigen ones, don't actually look for the spike protein. They look for other sections of the genome or a different protein. So a lot of them aren't going to be affected by the mutations that we're seeing so far.
0: And going back to what you were saying about surveillance and sequencing of the, of the genomes and all, the Biden administration has said that the CDC is going to invest about $200 million to scale up this stuff. Any other things that the administration is looking forward to doing on this front?
1: The CDC sort of first tried to launch a national surveillance system for this viral sequencing sort of back in November when we sort of realized that these variants of concern were cropping up. In the U.S., we're pretty far behind sequencing compared to somewhere like the U.K., which identified its variant sort of because of its robust sequencing. We don't actually know sort of all of their variants that might be circulating in the U.S. right now just because we really haven't been looking for them. So that's something that public health experts are really sort of keen to gear up on. The Biden administration sort of is on board, like we said, with, with the money from the CDC to do this. So it's definitely something that health officials are pushing for as we start to Continuously see this virus mutate and change sort of as it continues to spread.
0: Brianna Abbott, health reporter at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
3: In this research, uh, the researchers took zinnia cells, a uh, type of plant, and they cultured them. They cultured them in a broth, put them in a gel, they printed them. And then they're able to basically grow, uh, for this research, a
0: wood-like material. Joining us now is Keith Galogly, contributing writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Keith. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about some uh, interesting science stuff right now. We, you know, We've heard a lot about lab-grown meat in the news, especially lately. But there's another thing coming on board, possibly lab-grown wood, lab-grown plant materials. And uh, there's a group of uh, MIT researchers who kind of came up with this process, this new process. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, future implications possibly if things can be scaled up with this. I mean, you can grow furniture to exact specifications and sizes and shapes. There's a lot of cool stuff that can be done with this. So, Keith, tell us what we know about this new uh, process right here of uh, lab-grown plant materials.
3: Lab-grown plant material, I think it's a a really a pretty new idea, but the idea is is that you can take cells, basically. Um, In this research, uh, the researchers took zinnia cells, a uh, type of plant, and they cultured them. They cultured them in a broth, put them in a gel, they printed them, and then they're able to basically grow, uh, for this research, a wood-like material. It's not exactly wood, but it's a wood-like material, still pretty firm. The idea being, you know, if this could be scaled up one day, hey, we could use this material like wood. And the idea being there is that if we can do that, we don't have to go and we don't have to cut down trees so we can preserve a lot of arable land and basically lessen the uh, environmental footprint of processes like that.
0: For them right now, this is a proof of concept. I mean, this is how things started. You think about, as I mentioned, the lab-grown meat thing, you know, at one point, This is how that kind of started where, hey, we can do this type of thing. Now it's about making it more efficient, scaling it up. Let's talk about those benefits, though, first, before we get into some of the other stuff. This doesn't require soil or sunlight. As we said, it it can grow in a lab in a matter of months, but that's way better than planting trees and forests. It could take years to mature and things like that. So let's talk about some of these benefits.
3: That's absolutely correct. The process would not require soil or sunlight, as you mentioned, and it really wouldn't require arable land to do this. So you could do this really in any climate because this would be done indoors. Right. Um, The other thing, too, is you wouldn't need pesticides for a process like this. It's pretty passive. You put the cells into this gel and you let them grow over a couple months and, you know, in this case, develop into a wood like material. So, yeah, once again, the water required would be limited. You could reduce runoff water because you can use just the exact amount of water needed. So overall, there's a lot of environmental uh, benefits to doing a process like this, the researchers believe.
0: And a little more on the science now. These uh, plant cells really can turn into a lot of different types of cells. That's how they kind of adjust things. So they'll put these on, on kind of these little cell scaffolding so that it can start growing and then they have to start tweaking things ph balance other stuff and then it starts turning into the desired uh, plant material the wood in this case that we're talking about
3: that's exactly correct uh, the researchers what they did was they took these zinnia cells and they basically looked at the variables the factors that they can sort of tweak or tune so they looked at adjusting uh ph value they applied some hormones auxin cytokinin those are hormones that kind of spur plant development and the idea was to get the cells to grow into wood-like tissue, into uh, vascular cell types, which is essentially wood. And so by tweaking the cells this way or that way, you know, the researchers monitored that process. And then when they looked at it at the end, they had something that, that was wood-like. So that, that's exactly it. They have to really monitor the cell types and tweak those processes, you know, as you as you described there.
0: And then, as you mentioned, they put it in this gel, and that gel can be bioprinted into Various shapes and forms and and whatnot. So that's kind of the exciting stuff. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the future implications of this. You know, one of the things that we heard a lot about is this could be open, the potential for lab grown furniture. (laughs) You know, you can create whatever structure that you want from this and it could be in this kind of wood or plant like structure. And then beyond that, even they said that we can make responsive materials, kind of these uh, organics that can respond to their surroundings.
3: That's exactly correct. I mean, to be clear, you know, as we, as we talked about, it is still early stage work. This was really proof of concept. The material that the researchers created, they're very thin sort of rectangular shapes primarily, and really just, just to show proof of proof of concept, only a few centimeters long. But using these same techniques, you know, using these same concepts, it could be feasible to basically bioprint, to 3D print essentially something like an entire chair or an entire table, Um, The idea, of course, by doing that would be you would uh, reduce a lot of downstream processes, a lot of fabrication steps and things like that. So therefore, once again, you'd ultimately end up with uh, likely a more environmentally friendly process. And as far as yeah, the advanced materials, I think that's something that's a little bit more far out into the future. But the idea being there, you know, the researchers are working with living plant cells. Um, You know, in this case, the cells do eventually become a wood-like material. You know, for this research, they do dry and, and die up. But the idea being that by working with living plant cells, we could maybe harness plant cells' properties. You know, if a plant gets damaged, it can heal itself, uh, different properties like that. So if we can incorporate those properties into materials, into advanced devices someday, that could be something that's really pretty powerful, I think.
0: Keith Gilogli, contributing writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much.